You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So for a lot of us around the labor relations community, both union side and employer side, a lot of us watched the United Auto Workers strike or UAW strike against the Detroit Three, which are Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, with great curiosity, if you will. And my guest today is an economist by the name of Mark Robinson. And Mark's take on the strike was very interesting. And Mark writes a substack called C-Suite, which I started following a couple weeks ago. And I read one of his articles and I was like, hmm, that's a really interesting take. And what Mark does is he applies game theory or war gaming to looking at what happens at the negotiating table, different scenarios. So I wanted to have Mark on to kind of explain that and deconstruct what had happened with the UAW strike and why, in his opinion, it was a foregone conclusion. So without further ado, here's Mark Robinson. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Mark Robinson, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. It is a pleasure to have you on today. How are you? Doing great. I'm glad to be here. So I found you quite by accident. I think you had written an article a couple of weeks ago about the UAW strike and at the Big Three, and I found it very intriguing. And you have a consulting firm called C-Suite, and you get into something very interesting or intriguing, and I'd like to delve into that a little bit more, but that's the gaming theory or the war gaming analysis that you do. So, so if we could, tell me about your background, first of all, is that also is interesting, and then, and then we can go to that. Sure. So um, I'm an economist. I spent more than 30 years at General Motors. Before that, I taught at UCLA and Stanford, and uh, I had a year off to work on the Council of Economic Advisors in the H.W. Bush uh, White House. Hmm. So I like to say the wall fell on my watch. Um, uh, but the, but, uh, at General Motors, I was in a variety of roles, uh, in strategic initiatives and strategic risk management. I was an internal consultant, uh, using a, a range of tools to help think through challenging strategic issues. Those tools range from traditional economic analysis and revenue management to game theory, war gaming, scenario analysis and scenario wargaming. My favorite tool was game theory, and we used it uh, more than 150 times on different issues in General Motors, including many different kinds of negotiations, uh, partner, supplier, dealer. There, there was a lot of uh, government relations type issues that it was relevant for, but I it was involved in labor strategy projects on every uh, major GM labor negotiation between 1999 and 2019. I, I left GM in 2020. 
Uh, the, the the firm I've got the you mentioned C Suite. That's a Substack newsletter that I write, and uh, with oh, my right. colleague, I apologize. Yeah. No problem with my colleague John Julens, and then I have uh, then we also have a boutique consulting firm, uh, MSR Strategy. So, what do you do in terms of your consulting? So we help think through complex. The the, the world is changing and traditional strategy tools just don't cut it. And so whether it's helping handle complicated negotiations or thinking through challenging scenarios, for example, for a large agricultural company, we looked at China scenarios and what the implications would be for their business. So that involved doing some scenario wargaming in that context. For something like a labor negotiation, the issues are well, fairly well-defined, and the parties are well-known, and they're interacting very tightly with each other. So when in that kind of situation, unlike, say, U.S.-China relations, the game theory is a very powerful uh, tool because it, it, what you do is you th- think through carefully who's involved, what can they do, and what do they want. And in a structured process, and then you can predict where things are heading. You know, if, imagine you have a marble in a complicated space. Where is that marble going to land? But you can also look at for at you can identify danger outcomes where you know your party's misjudged a little bit, or you've got uh, some set of preferences a little wrong. Um, how bad could it get from the point of view of the client? And then you could you can also identify target outcomes. How how can we improve things and come up with strategy and tactics to try and do that? So is game theory something that's been around for a while, or is it? Or and if so, has it been applied to business in the past? I give a lecture every year at Duke Business School on to a game theory class, and the game theory professor introduces me and says. Uh, Mark has done more game theory inside a company than anyone ever. So the key thing that that these uh, tools allow you to do is handle really complex issues. So typically we'd have five to seven players and 20 levers. That compares to the usual classroom examples where there are two players, each of whom have one lever. So it's a... It's a much richer analysis and a much more complex in a much more complex environment, but it's it draws on the fundamental insights uh, that have been around for eighty years or so. So this is, and this may be the wrong term, a predictive analytic tool. It, yes. it helps you predict the what the outcomes are likely to be, and also how you can do better, how you can. You can uh, anticipate how things will go if you just follow what comes naturally. And, well, maybe if, if we do things a little bit differently, we can improve the outcome. So it's how do you make your strategy more robust and uh, improve the outcome of negotiations by understanding where things are headed if you don't, in part. Is it fairly accurate when you're using yes. that? Absolutely. We 
we had, as I said, used it many times at General Motors. They wouldn't have come back if it, it to me, all those times, uh, I think it was 150 times, they, they wouldn't come back if it weren't, wasn't extremely successful, both at predicting outcomes. And what's what's kind of fascinating about it is that it the, the key approach is that you get the uh, subject matter experts and decision makers in a room and uh, you're you're drawing on their different their understanding of the different players and developing extracting in a in a logical way their mental model of the issue then when you come back and say here's where things are heading and here's how you can do better there's a very tight logical connection between the recommendations and the, the people's mental model so one thing that's very important is to try and get the decision makers in the room helping to to craft to develop or or elicit the the mental model because then even if it's a remarkably different strategy they will understand it and embrace it so you, it's a way of getting in fact great consensus inside an organization so one of the things well I wanted to touch on a whole bunch of things, but one of the things I had seen you had written was that the UAW strike, the most recent one that just concluded, was kind of a foregone conclusion. It was yes. going to happen. Well, not only was the strike going to happen, what I'd argue is that that even though how it happened, you know, they they they, they struck all three companies at once. They had this public bargaining. They had the they, they did a, a slow boil strike. So they struck only a few plants at the start and then added more as each week went on. None of that had happened before, but I argue in that right as the strike was launched that this was all highly predictable. And in fact, as I wrote a series of 11, what I called quick takes for the newsletter covering, you know, as, as different developments are happened and they, you know, they, it's a real-time case study of how thinking about things with a, from a 3, 3D perspective, with uh, thinking through carefully how the different parties are, what they care about and what they can do, that then makes prediction remarkably successful. Uh, well, even in an unprecedented situation. So, and so the the core thing that made this predictable was the previous two big negotiations. And so, I think that's important to understand before we dive into why why it was so predictable. When you say the previous two, are you talking about 2019 and then 2015? Yes, exactly. Okay. So, what happened in 2015 was that there was a absolutely disastrous negotiation round. Disastrous for the UAW? For everybody. Okay. But in particular, the U, it was disastrous for everyone, uh, including the, particularly the UAW leadership, but it was disastrous for everybody. What happened was that the union leadership reached a tentative agreement with Stellantis, what's now Stellantis, so I think it was FCA at the time. You know, there were, it was strange that the union would have picked Solantis. So just a quick background for those who don't know it. The three companies negotiate simultaneously um, starting in August for a mid-September 
contract expiration. Shortly after Labor Day, traditionally, the UAW picked one of the three as a lead, would negotiate, would put the other two negotiations on hold, drive to the contract expiration, typically settle at midnight, uh, reach a tentative agreement, take it to the memberships at that lead company, and then take that as a pattern to the other two companies. And because the companies actually liked being, sort of having the ability to craft the, the pattern, they, 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 there was a little bit of bidding, bidding or, or dancing going on in August to try and get the union, convince the union usually to, to pick us and not the other guys from the company standpoint. So, so in 2015, the union picked Stellantis, and it was odd that they did that. And then it, they uh, reached a very strange agreement, they, including having the union take on health care. They had already owned the retiree health care, but now they were taking on regular active health care. And then they took it to the membership, and it was a very it, – it, they did a terrible job of selling it. And the membership hated it. And so they turned down the agreement. This is the first time that the membership had rejected a tentative agreement proposed by the leadership in memory for at the national level. Now, what they should have done at that point is what happened this year at Mack Truck. What they should have done was go back, let, take the workers out on strike, let them blow off some steam, uh, let them miss some paychecks, and then come back and uh, with a slightly recast deal that cost about the same for the company. So what they did instead was they went back to the bargaining table without a strike and got a vastly better deal from the point of view of the members and a significantly more expensive one from the point of view of the company than the original deal. Well, that destroys bargaining. So already that was, that was disaster number one. Then they take that pattern to General Motors, uh, barely passes at GM, but the skilled trades voted no. And in theory, they could have just ignored it, but, but GM made some skilled trades concessions, again, without going back, without any strike, they made some skilled trades negotiations concessions, and so the skilled trades got a better deal by saying no. Then they went to Ford, barely passed, even though Ford upped its uh, the signing bonus. But then they took it to next tier, a major not this agreement, but they 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 next went to a major supplier next tier, and the union proposed a, a tentative agreement. 97% of the members turned it down, and they got a better deal after a one-day strike. Okay, so the mem UAW membership had been very thoroughly trained to say no to, to whatever the management, the, whatever the union leadership proposed, and then they would do better. So it, the union leadership had lost all credibility. The union leadership was correctly perceived to be incompetent, and management was facing a disastrous situation where they could never get a deal done. 
So this was in 2015. So let me let me pause for a second there and come back to it because concurrently, I think the time frame was going on where you started seeing the corruption emerging first with FCA and the UAW leadership there. Correct. That was 20. Yeah, that happened in 2016 or 17. That the so in fact it turned out later that one reason they had picked FCA or Stellantis was that there was a a corrupt relationship between the the uh, UAW head at at FCA right General Holyfield and the lead bargainer for Stellantis or or FCA right and GM didn't realize that. And actually, it hired that lead bargainer, and then hmm. two days late, a week later, walked him out the door because of the corruption scandal that emerged. They were stealing joint funds. So Hollyfield had died by then, but other union officials went to jail, and as did the lead bargainer for FCA. Yeah, he was uh, Holyfield was like the first domino that came to light. As the rest of the domos started, and there were three other right. major con- corruption scandals that emerged all the way through 2019, right? And two UAW presidents ended up going to jail, right? As well as other senior UAW officials, and these these were distinct corruptions. They were different, <laughs> four different corruption scandals. So in 2018. A full year in advance of the 2019 bargaining, game theory analysis indicated very clearly that there would be a strike in 2019, that it would be a major strike, and that there was really nothing that any of the companies could do about it, and that it was likely, by the way, to be at General Motors. Now, why could you tell that? Well, because it was absolutely critical in 2019 for the UAW leadership to try and regain some credibility, they they had to do something to regain to you know they had been exposed as being incompetent and weak in 2015. Plus, there's the corruption in the background, and so they could not afford to have a failed ratification vote. And if they did, for whatever reason, end up with a failed ratification vote, which was would be certain if they just went to them to the members without a strike, they would have to strike. So whether it was as the result of them, uh, for some reason, making the mistake of making an tentative agreement before the contract expired, or they had to take the members out on strike for a long time in order to convince them that they had gotten every penny that, that the company would be willing to offer. Right, And it didn't matter what the company offered. It did not matter. It was going to be a long strike regardless. And so that was a prediction, again, more than a year in advance. And it became inevitable that it would be GM. It, it was likely to be GM in any case. It was going to be inevitable. To, it was inevitable it would be GM after a botched plant closing announcement at the end of 2018. Uh, 18. So the, you know, so General Motors, essentially, the only thing that it could do was prepare for a strike, because the union leadership had to strike. And so understanding the, the motivation of the union leadership, understanding that union leader, union member dynamic, 
was critical to the game, to that UAW game. Was that Dennis Williams at the time? Uh, no, he he was he, was he had already left. Done. He was okay. already he was the one who did 2015 was, and uh, later Gary, went to jail. Gary yeah. Jones, Gary yeah. Jones, yeah, who also later went to jail and in fact was dealing with the investigation during the strike. I'm dovetailing so, this in because I think it's relevant to the background and absolutely. you also touched on this on a podcast I listened to. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very closely relevant. So I, as I say, it was predictable well in advance, you know, and that was true despite the fact that there hadn't been a major national strike in uh, more than 40 years. Hmm. Okay, so this was for 2019. Okay, now coming out of 2019, well, you have, you know, the settlement agreement of the union with federal prosecutors where they now have to have their first ever direct election instead of having it be done by representatives at the at a convention. And so in early 2023, there was an extraordinarily tight election between, if you will, well, the establishment forces of the union, the, the traditional experienced bargaining folks, and insurgents. And Sean Fain, who led the insurgent effort, narrowly won in a runoff election. Very narrow. It was a very tight election. That then made what happened you know, in August and September and October and November inevitable in some ways. He campaigned saying he was going to be different than that than this old corrupt established union leaders. He was going to be tougher and he was going to be different. He then proceeded to announce an absolutely extraordinary list of what he even he would consider would be audacious demands. Right. That's that's okay. the word that went around the press. Audacious. Audacious is yeah. yeah. Management would have had another word for it, probably. <laughs> but audacious certainly cap. I mean, as, you know, your listeners probably know, but it it was not only forty percent wages. It was not only a re- restoration. Oh, so the other critical piece of background, which again your listeners may know, is that the union, up to and through the financial crisis that resulted in the bankruptcy of two of the Detroit three, had made major concessions that had helped the company survive. So they had agreed to a two-tier, actually a variety of tiers for for in order to keep jobs in the companies for things like warehouse workers, and they had agreed to do sub-assemblies, again, uh, agreed to lower wages for those jobs. They had agreed to make a variety of productivity improvements, and they had taken, they had given up retiree health care with, with lots of billions from the company going to fund the, the, an account for that, they had given up traditional defined benefit pensions. They had given up uh, the jobs bank, which had insured, basically paid workers even if they were laid off. 
uh, they'd given up cost of living increases. These were massive concessions that going into, in, in about uh, 2005, there was the average hourly cost of an hour of work at the Detroit Three was on the order of $78 compared to $40 roughly at the non-union OEMs. Mm -hmm. So a large gap, the companies were shrinking and it was a downward spiral. And But the union agreed to concessions that helped ensure the survival with the help of the government support, which was enormous. So this year, the companies were making record profits. All three were making record profits. You had workers angry about the two-tier wages the, 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 and the other, many other concessions that had been made 15 years earlier. There was this new president who was saying he's going to get it all back and plus more. Right. Okay, a 32-hour work week. I mean, it was, it was just an astonishing list of demands. And he didn't back off those demands. He kept those demands front and center all the way through the process. It, you know, often the unions would make these outlandish demands early in the process, then they'd go quiet. During bargaining, there would be back and forth in the bargaining, but there, the, the ultimate tentative agreement would be uh, moderate gains. For the, for the union. This time, Fain was bargaining in public and he was refusing to back off anything. So, um, so what did that mean? Well, there was no way that, that, that you could reach a tentative agreement in that kind of environment because he would correctly say, I can't possibly take this to my members. And if I did, they would turn me down. So a strike was, was absolutely inevitable. But he also had to do it differently. He had to show he was different. So just picking a lead company and taking them out on strike wouldn't show he was different. It wouldn't, and it wouldn't, it, it would be more of the same old, same old. Why, why did we elect you? So he didn't pick a lead company and struck all three at once. Well, he couldn't afford to take all three companies down. That would be a $90 million a week hit to the strike right. fund. Right. Okay. So he had to do this stage strike, but it couldn't just be, he couldn't just stay at that low level forever. He had to continually escalate. And oh, by the way, that escalation gave him Lots of opportunities. First of all, he's getting press every week. He's keeping mm -hmm. the strike absolutely in the news. He can calibrate how much pain he wants to give. So he deliberately, the initial strike was not against the profit centers of the Detroit Three. It, it wanted to be a shot across the bow. He wanted to get lots of attention in the press, he wanted to show his members that he was being tough, 
and wanted not to cause great pain to the companies. He wanted to save that for later because he knew he couldn't settle early. He couldn't settle in the first week. He couldn't settle in the second week. He had to last at least as long as the 2019 General Motor 40-day strike. If it was shorter than the 40-day strike, first of all, the workers won't have had enough pain. And how was he tougher than the old guys? So it had to be at least 40 days. And with the help of apparently some good strategy advice he was getting internally from people, staffers that he'd hired, he, he was picking things to, to kind of ratchet up, maximizing publicity, but not maximizing pain until the time he's ready to really start getting serious about a final contract. And that had to be after, you know, four or five weeks. There was no point in getting serious about bargaining before that four or five week time frame. And me, so go ahead. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you think he calculated this all out? His strategist calculated it all out. Was it like, we're, we're talking as though it was a foregone conclusion that he had to outlast the 40 day strike in 2019. The one thing that it struck me very early on was the night he called the first group of plants out and on his uh, Facebook video. And I, I've mentioned this a couple times on a couple of different episodes. He invoked the Bible. And he also talked about how he prayed before he ran for president. And what struck me about this was that, and this is not to pick on anybody's religion or anything, but I, I came away from watching that thinking, Okay, this guy's a true believer. And and I say that literally to the point where this is a kind of quote holy war for him. So yes, I think that you know, I think let's take a step back just for a second. You know, here was this guy who was an obscure local leader, union leader in the UAW. As soon as he announced the strike, he became the strikes. He became the most famous labor leader in America. Mm-hmm. He's also, he became the most famous UAW leader since Walter Ruther died in 1970. Right. He got Joe Biden to walk the picket line with him. No one had ever done that. It doesn't get any better than that for a union leader. Apparently there's, I've heard there's camera crews following him around. He's, he wants to lead, and very early on, he he said he, he wanted this contract to be for four, uh, instead of just four years, for four and a half years, to expire on April 30th, 2028. Right. Okay, he, he's encouraged all the other unions to do the same. Right. He wants to lead a general strike on May Day 2028. He wants to set up a revolutionary labor movement, a European-style general strike. That if, been... By the way, if I, what I would tell any company, no matter what industry, do not have your contracts expire 
in spring of 2028. Do anything to keep to keep that from happening, because if they strike, if it, it because Baines has announced he wants to lead a general strike in 2028. There will be so one thing we we can talk about what you know one of the lessons from this for the Detroit Three should be strikes for the foreseeable future are the norm for every contract negotiation. We are now out of the world where there can be a tentative agreement on midnight of the contract expiration. Every every negotiation will end with a strike. We'll have a strike in it. So it will I, end when So anyway, go ahead. Let me let me come back to that because you mentioned this and we kind of went over it fairly quickly. The 2015 strike set the membership up and allowed them, and I, I don't want to use the term allow too loosely, but allowed them to get the expectation that they could just turn out, turn down a contract and get something better without striking. To, to turn down a contract and get something better. Right. That, that, that turn down, the, reject a tentative agreement and get something better. Like last best and final offer does no longer mean last best and final offer. And and a tentative agreement, particularly one that was reached before a strike, couldn't possibly be the last, best, and final. Right. Okay. And you have Sean Fain saying this time that GM and Ford gave 50% more after the strike started than their last offer before the strike. 50%. I mean, this is astonishing. Is that I'm, in fact accurate? I can easily, you know, I don't, I haven't seen how he calculated the numbers. It wouldn't surprise me because it was an extraordinary agreement. And, and the companies knew, should have known, I, I'm not totally sure if Ford knew, that this strike was inevitable. And so don't put your last, best, and final because it's not going to be enough. Sean Fain's going to demand more, and you need to to let this process play out. Need to let members start feeling some pain. You need to let Sean Fain show he's winning, in order to get this deal done. And do you think that's going to happen again in 2028? I it it cannot, but you know it must happen in 2028. The members will not accept any tentative agreement that that could pos- the companies could possibly agree to in 2028 without a strike let me let me kind of broaden this for a second then we'll come back to it is that on the assumption that the economy is still in decent shape in 2028 because you know depending on where you read there's a lot of economists that think that we're going to be in the in a world of recession at least you know, sometime fairly soon. It depends a little bit on the on the economic outlook. I mean, in particular, it depends on whether the companies are still making money, and whether they've you know. And so, if they're losing money and they're you know, they, I still think there will be a strike. I still think that okay. they will find. I still think that they, the company, if the companies, if the economy's bad, the companies will be trying to close plants or. Or something else like that, the union will just say no to. 
you know, and he said that that he wants to bring back defined benefit pensions, which would be and retiree health care, which are are no goes for the companies. They just can't right. afford it. Right. And so and he more or less knows that. But he, even after the strike, he was talking about getting that next time. You know, this is where. So, I mean, look, we can talk more about the game that he was actually playing. But I think he's getting excellent advice for his objectives, mm-hmm. which are to have a win this time and to become the most famous labor leader in America and lead a revitalized labor movement. He accomplished those objectives. I'm not sure that he's he's going to do as well in the... The problem is that this is a repeated game. You know, not only in 2028, which is a long time in the future, and he can, you know, why should he worry about that? That's after he's already been reelected. You know, right. that, that's, that's a long time from now. But there are all the supplier negotiations coming up. And I think that the members' expectations have been raised everywhere in the union. So I can't imagine this, you know, any contract that the UAW signs being a smooth kind of midnight contract expiration, tentative agreement ratified by the members. It's it's just going to be hard to get any agreement at any company that the UAW is representing. Well, there's a couple questions to that. You, you mentioned the suppliers. Their contracts are probably expiring soon. Their expectations have been raised. However, Fain raised the expectations to the 40% wage increases. He wound up with 25, 32 hour work weeks. That didn't change. So, and the contracts with the big three or the Detroit three barely passed, or at least with GM and I think Ford had some issues as well. Well, 65%. So companies typically would tell themselves if we get 53%, that's a, that's a good, we did, that was the, uh, that's good news. We didn't give away too much kind of thing. But I mean, you mentioned 25%, 25% for the experienced full-time people. They also Mm. got, 70% 70% plus wage increases for the warehouse workers and that they shortened the tier twos, you know, so you're getting two top wages much faster. They got rid of two tiers. And so they, they brought back cost of living. I mean, it, they got, they got an extra, you know, they got a big enhancement to their 401k. They got a massive signing bonus. It was, you know, it's a truly extraordinary and extraordinarily expensive deal. I, you know, haven't, don't have the, from the outside, you can't calculate how much the cost increase has been. My gut sense is that the cost per hour went from around $65 or so per hour at the Detroit 3 to something in the neighborhood of one hundred dollars per hour in okay. one, but by the end of the by by twenty twenty eight. So, wow! 
so that's a, a massive increase. And the sign that it, that it spread beyond the Detroit Three is Mack Trucks. So the, the union reached an agreement with Mack Trucks for, I, I think it was for 20% over three years or something like that. The workers turned it down. Mm-hmm. Now, here, here it's interesting what happened. They went on strike for six weeks, five or six weeks. The union then went back to the members and said, we've settled some local stuff, but the company has told us that their October 1st offer, you know, in other words, the one the, the, the members rejected, is their last, best, and final. And then they took it back to the members who had now lost several paychecks, and they passed it. Well, and the component to that was also that this is it, and the company's going to start replacing if you don't accept it. Which and it was a credible threat, right? right? So, the, so the company said credible threats. The leadership took it back to the members, and they got nothing for their strike for right. their their lost wages. They right. they get got got to keep their job. But you could see that happening something similar at. Any supplier you can imagine that's that's got a union contract, Lear, Dana. I mean, I it, you know I don't need, know all the ones that are up, but those strikes are not going to just affect the Detroit Three, though they certainly will affect the Detroit Three. They can affect there. There are very few vehicles made in North America that don't have a UAW part in it. Mm-hmm. So it it's going to be a rough. 2024 for the auto industry. Let me let me ask you a general question. Is I, I did a post on this over the weekend, and it was based on a CNN article on how many unions are getting double-digit increases. And in part, I think it was only natural for a lot of these companies to settle with double-digit increases because the negotiated contracts that they were renegotiating were from 2019, 2020, pre-pandemic, and you had this massive uplifting of wages due to great resignation, quiet quitting. And so these companies have kind of fallen. Yeah, and inflation, and they've fallen behind. So the double-digit increases, most of the big contracts we're talking about are front-loaded contracts. Like the UAWs is, I think, 11.5% on that 25 in the first year. And then right. it, it tapers off to three or four or whatever the numbers are. And then the and then the cost of living kick, kicks in, so it, it'll get right. it'll get more more over time. But yes, you know there there was there's definitely an element of catch up in the current environment. Right. Um, Teamsters with the UPS, the same thing. It, and yeah. Mary, uh, not Mary Berry, uh, the CEO Carol Tome, I think of UPS was actually bragging about it. Yeah, bad idea, by the way. Um, but uh, it's true. You know, part of the game theory here is that it always pays the management to let the union leadership claim a win. Mm-hmm. It never ever pays to to say we won as a management. The union leadership is a political job. You've got to be always concerned about the membership. Right, and you you never want to humiliate the leadership, and you never want to claim a win. 
And so, you know, ex- externally, you, you, you know, in public, you can claim a win to your board all you want, but you can't claim a win to, to anyone outside the company uh, or have it leaked <laughs> outside the company. Right. So, you know, you're always trying to get past the, the, you know, whatever bad feelings the contract negotiations had, had engendered in, in order to make some money while, uh, until the next negotiation round. Right. By the way, you know, so again, I, you mentioned 2015. It wasn't a strike. I mean, the key thing, it was, it was not a strike that, that created the, such a, made it so disastrous. It, no, that was. It was the was absence of the strike, if anything, that made it disastrous. Right. But that um, sets, set the stage for this one. It, for, for 2019, and, which in turn set the stage for this one. Mm-hmm. The union adopted uh, a really classic game, uh, uh, the winning strategy in a classic game. It's a game of chicken. So, in a game of chicken, for those of us. I, I, even I was uh, too young to, to for the peak of this game, but it was two drivers going straight at each other. The first one to swerve lost the game and was humiliated in front of the audience, which presumably included a potential romantic partner. The normal strategy in the game is to swerve at the last minute and avoid disaster by both part by both drivers. The winning strategy in the game of chicken is in the full view of the other driver, unscrew your steering wheel, hold it out the window in full view, <laughs> and throw it away. Okay. As long as you do it first, <laughs> before right. the other guy could do it. So Sean Fain did the labor negotiation equivalent of throwing away the steering wheel. He was barking in public. He was saying, I've got to get all this outrageous, audacious, however you want to call it, list of demands, and I'm not backing off. I'm throwing away the steering wheel. You know that I can't possibly go back to my members with anything less than a record contract. I'll give you time to realize how painful that's going to be, but that's the way it's going to be. And, you know, that was an example of you know a winning strategy in this particular in this round of negotiation. Once you know this is likely to happen, there are things the companies can do about it. But they were, were dealing with this car coming at them without a steering wheel. He also Sean Fain did did some tactical things that you know again in the short term may have been successful. So one of the tactical things was to disrespect the management of the companies. A classic classic example, so Ford had arranged for a meeting of the union leadership with the senior group at the the CEO plus Bill Ford, the scion of the, the company and chairman of the board. And Sean Fain didn't show up. He ghosted the meeting. Yeah, it was traditional the traditional handshake that's been going on for years. No, this decades. was this was even no, this was the, the he first of all he didn't do this handshake that and they they made that public beforehand. 
but this was right at the end, you know, the last oh. week, two days before the contract. The idea was Bill Ford talks about how much he cares, and this is a record contract, and you guys look at all we've done for the union. Let's get in this together and beat Toyota. It's sort of a similar announcement that he made several weeks later. And every previous union president would have said, uh, you know, this is a good opportunity to be face-to-face -face with the man. I'm being treated as an equal. This is great. Sean Fain wants to say, you know, didn't even bother to show up. Right. Okay. Okay. And then later in the negotiations, he insists on a meeting with Ford. Ford says, well, we're not quite, quite ready for final offer. He said, you've had enough time. They come up, they think that it's going to mostly be about the battery plant issue, which they found a very expensive solution to for Ford and for the future of the electric vehicle industry. But as they're starting to sort of get into this, he says, is this all you have? And 10 minutes into the meeting, he walks out and announces that he's closing the, the, the most profitable Ford plant. Finally, this was no longer shot across the bow. This was a shot at the waterline and has a film crew there. So this is not polite behavior. This is not relationship building. This is relationship destroying behavior. And so I think it may have helped get Ford off its game. May have, you know, Ford had rightly viewed its good union relationship as a strategic advantage compared to General Motors. And that's, you know, and one way they built it was by having, I mean, Ford has 12,000 more UAW workers than General Motors, even though GM builds many more vehicles. That's because GM builds a lot of vehicles in Mexico. Ford does not. So Ford, for a whole variety of reasons and over a long history, had worked to build this relationship. And here, Sean Fain is... You burning know, it. Burning it to burning the ground. It in, yeah. in public. Burning right. it in public. So that that is a... You mean, you know, how Ford will respond long-term to that is going to be an interesting thing to to pay attention to. Well, so this kind of goes back to my question that I had the first night when I watched him call a strike. Is is it a strategic thing or you know, where somebody's actually thinking about the consequences, or is he just a true believer wanting to burn it all down? Is it a I want to change the class structure because it's all about the class struggle these days, or is it is he looking at it from a business partnership? Obviously not currently, but, you know, longer range down the road, does he even want that business partnership or does he just want to burn down the class structure? You know, I think that you, you can explain the behavior without need to answer that question. Putting myself in Sean Fain's shoes, that's the core of the game theory, is you put yourself in the shoes of the other guy. What matters to him? Well, he's got to look over his shoulder every day. 
or at least before the strike he did, mm-hmm. because he's got half of the executive board backed his opponent. He's viewed with a great deal of suspicion inside the union. He barely won. He's got a, his goal had to be to cement his position in the union, or at least one of his goals. You know, and by being different in all these ways, I, I cannot imagine that the next that he will fail to be reelected at the next UAW, the next presidential election. I think that's uh, either four years or five years down the road, right? It's uh, yeah, probably twenty twenty seven. Now, the, the way it could go wrong between now and then is if if these supplier strikes get out of control. So I think that the UAW should be very concerned about how do they balance the uh, member expectations with what the companies can afford and with whatever kind of long-term goals they have in regard to uh, the supply chain. You know, sort of as soon as he finishes celebrating these wins, he's got a lot of headaches coming up. Yes, there were a lot of people who thought we're hoping for even more, but the the establishment candidates don't have a credible story that says we would have gotten more if you had only voted us in. Right. Well, he's got a couple of the other hurdles he's got is the EVs as well as the non-union foreign automakers. Yes. And- yeah, so he'd love to, but remember, those aren't currently UAW members. So right. that therefore, yes, I mean, he'd love even one major OEM voting for the UAW would be a massive win for him. If he can get two, uh, if he can, or if he get, if one of those is Toyota or Tesla, he's in a vastly better position for 2028 with the Detroit 3. And, you know, you mentioned the, the class struggle. I mean, he is absolutely clearly, I mean, the May Day general right. strike, that is a, the mark of a true believer. He does want to revitalize the labor movement. He does think that, that the rich have gotten too rich. Would he love to lead that national labor union? Yes. Is that something he's going to be trying to do? Yes. What will enable him to do that? Well, if he can keep this things roughly in, in control on the supply side and win over a couple of other non-union plants, he'll have a lot of wind at his back for, for national uh, efforts. But as I say, you know, my guess is his ambitions have grown as, you know, as events transpire. I mean, when he called the strike, you know, having Bernie Sanders there cheering him on, mm-hmm. having Donald Trump cancel a date, debate appearance in a desperate effort to, to not a desperate effort, he, you know, he wanted to, didn't want to go to the debate anyway, but in an effort to claim victory, get, you know, get the auto workers on his side, and then have Joe Biden, he earned some chits with Joe Biden by agreeing to you know, have Joe Biden show up the day before Trump was going to come in and 
let him speak to the picket line in, uh, as well as march on it. And then the next day, Donald Trump is forced to give his speech to a non-union supplier because he, there was no union company that wanted to have Trump speak. Right. So does Sean Fain have national political ambitions? I'm sure he does. I think his, his dream is to be as powerful as Walter Ruther. You know, Walter Ruther, you know, had enormous impact in the Democratic Party for a decade. He'd like to be that kind of role. But I don't think that drove the, the decision-making on the strike. I think that was a side benefit. Interesting. How much do you think this is going to spill over beyond the automotive industry? It's a good question. If I were any other union, I mean, the Teamsters or whatever, I'd be paying a lot of attention to how this went down. So part of that strategically, and, and we talked about it a little bit, is that it was very public. You know, he did the Facebook Live videos every week during the strike. He's been out in the press. He's now, I don't know if he's been named time of Times Man of the Year yet or Person of the Year, but I'm sure that's probably coming. So my question, I guess, is for whether it's grocery, retail, hospitals, whomever, other industries, are other union leaders going to start taking this approach? I would certainly recommend that companies start assuming that, do not assume that whatever, however it went in the past will be how it goes in the future. I think the, um, it's not, again, it's not just the union leadership who's going, who are going to be paying attention to what went on at the UAW, but union workers right. uh, or non-union workers. This got noticed. This, this is, this made a difference. And the fact that, Hollywood is on, was on strike. The fact that we had a 40-year period of remarkable labor peace in the United States, roughly from the end of the air traffic controller strike to 2019 or so. Well, from the management the, side, that's labor peace. On the union side, that's us taking it on the chin, so to speak. Exactly. So. Well, that's <laughs> that's my point. Is that is that. The world has changed, and it's changed for a, a whole variety of reasons. You know, the, some of the geopolitics, you know, part of what was driving that 40 year was uh, the rise of China and free trade. Globalization. And globalization. And so globalization is in retreat. Both Republicans and Democrats want to increase the walls not just for people, but for goods. And so the environment is fundamentally different, and that will have ramifications in many industries. Let me ask you, you're the probably the second, third, maybe fourth person I've heard say that from an e economist standpoint, or just generally speaking, that globalism is in retreat. Why is that? Well, is that... Is that Trump and the populism? You know, the part of it, that's backlash certainly part of from it. NAFTA? But it, it was, I think the, 
the roots of it are in the financial crisis, you know, back in 2008-9, which, you know, it people, lots of people were hurt, mm -hmm. you know, and that fueled the Tea Party, that fueled the, eventually fueled the, the rise of Trump. You know, you combine that, you know, a cultural sense that the this sort of globalization isn't what we want. It's it's changing our country. I mean, and it's, it doesn't matter which country. You know, it could be the Netherlands. You know, they're right. they're you know, it's our country is different. So you're there's resistance to that. There's a a sense that you know the U.S. power was overextended, and the U.S. is in retreat. You have this, the digital revolution, which is in the we're in the middle of, that's got some kind of scary implications for all kinds of industries. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in one of the big topics in the C-suite, and, 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 you know, is that we're in a new era just in the last few years. You know, the pandemic shouldn't be undercounted as well. You know, True. so they, they talk about black swans. A lot of these are gray rhinos. The financial crisis was a gray rhino. We were having this wild, debt-driven uh, extravaganza that was going to come to a crashing end. There was a pandemic uh, coming from China. We had hints of that, you know, with SARS and with swine flu and with uh, Zika and so on. So it wasn't that surprise that one would emerge. But the effect has been to change things, you know, and has been to uh, bring institutions into disrepute. And Trump has been absolutely both accelerating that and benefiting from that. You know, I, I do think the world has changed, and I think that, that you need to be thinking in terms of scenarios and you need to be understanding that these changes in order to navigate from the point of view of any business. Well, it's, it's emanating in a lot of different ways. And I, I know we're, we're probably running over time and there's a lot I, I could ask you about this, but it seems to be there's a, and I don't know another way to put this, but there's a nationalism that is going on throughout the world, anti-immigrant, anti-globalism. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how that's kind of, Es well, it's escalated and elevated over the last eight years, I guess. We're looking at Hillary Clinton back in 2015-16, who was supportive of global trade. And Trump comes in, and the whole narrative, even for Democrats, have, has shifted. Absolutely. No, I... And it... You know, as you say, as you say and it's not just in the U.S. It, there, there's... It's in retreat in Europe, in almost, you know, in many different countries. Uh, and even if it isn't directly, you know, people are nervous about it. China, one thing we talked about in, in this, so China's scenarios are very important, a major uncertainty going forward here. But it, it's, again, fairly predictable that the direction of U.S.-China relations is downhill. And that... China needs to decouple, U.S. wants to decouple, and China needs to decouple. And so the world is 
you know, the, the Ukraine war and the, the continued U.S.-China tensions are creating a fundamentally different dynamic in the world. And so it is getting, you know, the, the world is no longer flat, if it ever was. But you, it, it's still different than, the, you know, we're not going back to the Cold War exactly. I mean, you're dealing in a world where information is instantaneous and, you know, the, you've got this tech, uh, this computer revolution that we're right in the middle of, the digital revolution that we're right in the middle of. It's not that, that you know, the, the unions of the 40s and 50s are going to come back. It's that in this more chaotic environment, the union environment is, is, going to, is going to be fundamentally different. And both unions and management need to kind of think that through pretty carefully. If the prognostications are correct, we're also in this crossroads of we have a tight labor market, shrinking demographic at the rise of, you're talking about the digital revolution, but the rise of AI. And at some point that AI is going to start replacing humans starting to now, but it's going to be allegedly much quicker. Then the question then becomes how much power does labor have? Well, well, so the, yes, I agree which is why you probably want to think through scenarios rather than just make a straight line forecast. But, and we're getting both out. But the, uh, a lot of the AI is going to be going after people like you and me. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the, the white collar workers who generative AI is, is uh, the people who, who depend on words and, and, you know, programmers, data, sure, yeah, and uh, data analysis. So, the UAW has has a lot to to worry about going forward. You know, they they've now more than restored the the old gap that existed twenty years ago, and the, the companies are in the middle of this very uncertain transition to electric vehicles. Um, so it's a a fraught time for the industry, and you know w- one can argue that the UAW helped guarantee that the uh, there would be a structural cost disadvantage in the vehicle technology of the future for the Detroit Three. Mm. You know the Detroit Three made a decision five or six years ago that the battery technology was strategic and they wanted to make the batteries. They may already be regretting that decision. That's interesting. I mean, they entered into these joint ventures, never having done that before with suppliers, and they just got stuck with uh, assembly plant level wages and benefits and work rules. Well, and part of that was because they... They went into 2007, 2008 with very rich, fat contracts, and they had a lot of non-union competition even back then. Oh, yeah. No, right. that, that there was that, and they were afraid of it back then. Right. They were afraid of the non-union, you know, because the companies were losing money, and they right. were afraid of that. And they, 
you know, and there was good reason. The companies went bankrupt. They, they, they had to make those concessions in order for, I mean, if, if they hadn't, the, there wouldn't have been political support for the, what the, the government uh, ended up paying to help ensure the survival of the companies. So the, the union had to make those sacrifices. The union workers and but the union leadership had that very clearly in mind as early as 2005. I mean, several years before the 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 financial crisis. Right. You know, historically, the union had had essentially maximized the short-term wages and benefits. They finally they they realized that that the survival of the companies was at stake, and they made changes. They're back in the old mode. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, the companies are in a healthier position, but it's early days yet in that. And and they've made big bets on electric vehicles that they're feeling a little queasy about right now. Right, which we could go into a lot about that. But, well, Mark, I've kept you longer than anticipated, and I, I appreciate you spending the uh, time with me. No, it's it's been fun talking about it. So I um, pleasure to to meet you and to to have this conversation. Well, thank you for joining us on Labor Relations Radio. I would love to have another conversation with you because I didn't get to a couple of questions like the Viva from the two thousands and what happened to that and the bailouts and and some of that. But maybe that could be for another time. Happy to do it. All right. Uh, I, I lived through that. So. Yeah, no, I, I know it. I wanted to get to that, but in any case, well, thank you so much for coming on. Good to, good to talk to you. So that was Mark Robinson, economist, game theory analyst, and co-writer of the C-Suite newsletter. And as always, I'm going to leave some links under the audio portion of this episode. But that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter or X, formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm just a man living You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.